Section 4 of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter 3, Part 2. It has been remarked in former reports that she can distinguish different degrees of intellect in others, and that she soon regarded almost with contempt a newcomer when, after a few days, she discovered her weakness of mind. This unamiable part of her character has been more strongly developed during the past year. She chooses for her friends and companions those children who are intelligent and can talk best with her, and she evidently dislikes to be with those who are deficient in intellect, unless, indeed, she can make them serve her purposes, which she is evidently inclined to do. She takes advantage of them and makes them wait upon her, in a manner that she knows she could not exact of others, and in various ways shows her Saxon blood. She is fond of having other children noticed and caressed by the teachers, and those whom she respects, but this must not be carried too far, or she becomes jealous. She wants to have her share, which, if not the lion's, is the greater part, and if she does not get it, she says, My mother will love me. Her tendency to imitation is so strong that it leads her to actions which must be entirely incomprehensible to her, and which can give her no other pleasure than the gratification of an internal faculty. She has been known to sit for half an hour holding a book before her sightless eyes, and moving her lips, as she has observed seeing people do when reading. She one day pretended that her doll was sick, and went through all the motions of tending it and giving it medicine. She then put it carefully to bed, and placed a bottle of hot water to its feet, laughing all the time most heartily. When I came home, she insisted upon my going to see it, and feel its pulse, and when I told her to put a blister on its back, she seemed to enjoy it amazingly, and almost screamed with delight. Her social feelings and her affections are very strong, and when she is sitting at work or at her studies, by the side of one of her little friends, she will break off from her task every few moments to hug and kiss them with an earnestness and warmth that is touching to behold. When left alone, she occupies and apparently amuses herself, and seems quite contented, and so strongly seems to be the natural tendency of thought to put on the garb of language, that she often soliloquizes in the finger language, slow and tedious as it is. But it is only when alone that she is quiet, for if she becomes sensible of the presence of any one near her, she is restless until she can sit close beside them, hold their hand, and converse with them by signs. In her intellectual character it is pleasing to observe an insatiable thirst for knowledge, and a quick perception of the relation of things. In her moral character it is beautiful to behold her continual gladness, her keen enjoyment of existence, her expansive love, her unhesitating confidence, her sympathy with suffering, her conscientiousness, truthfulness, and hopefulness. Such are the fragments from the simple but most interesting and instructive history of Laura Bridgman. The name of her great benefactor and friend who writes it is 
Dr. Howe. There are not many persons, I hope and believe, who, after reading these passages, can ever hear that name with indifference. A further account has been published by Dr. Howe, since the report from which I have just quoted. It describes her rapid mental growth and improvement during twelve months more, and brings her little history down to the end of last year. It is very remarkable that as we dream in words and carry on imaginary conversations in which we speak both for ourselves and for the shadows who appear to us in those visions of the night, so she, having no words, uses her finger alphabet in her sleep. And it has been ascertained that when her slumber is broken and is much disturbed by dreams, she expresses her thoughts in an irregular and confused manner on her fingers, just as we should murmur and mutter them indistinctly in the like circumstances. I turned over the leaves of her diary and found it written in a fair, legible, square hand, and expressed in terms which were quite intelligible without any explanation. On my saying that I should like to see her write again, the teacher who sat beside her bade her, in their language, sign her name upon a slip of paper twice or thrice. In doing so, I observed that she kept her left hand always touching and following up her right, in which, of course, she held the pen. No line was indicated by any contrivance, but she wrote straight and freely. She had until now been quite unconscious of the presence of visitors, but having her hand placed in that of the gentleman who accompanied me, she immediately expressed his name upon her teacher's palm. Indeed, her sense of touch is now so exquisite that, having been acquainted with a person once, she can recognize him or her after almost any interval. This gentleman had been in her company, I believe, but very seldom, and certainly had not seen her for many months. My hand she rejected at once, as she does that of any man who is a stranger to her. But she retained my wife's with evident pleasure, kissed her, and examined her dress, with a girl's curiosity and interest. She was merry and cheerful, and showed much innocent playfulness in her intercourse with her teacher. Her delight on recognizing a favorite playfellow and companion, herself a blind girl, who silently, and with an equal enjoyment of the coming surprise, took a seat beside her, was beautiful to witness. It elicited from her at first, as other slight circumstances did twice or thrice during my visit, an uncouth noise, which was rather painful to hear, but of her teacher touching her lips she immediately desisted, and embraced her laughingly and affectionately. I had previously been into another chamber where a number of blind boys were swinging and climbing, and engaged in various sports. They all clamoured, as we entered, to the assistant master who accompanied us. "'Look at me, Mr. Hart! Please, Mr. Hart, look at me!' Evincing, I thought, even in this, an anxiety peculiar to their condition, that their little feats of agility should be seen. Among them was a small, laughing fellow who stood aloof, entertaining himself with a gymnastic exercise for bringing the arms and chest into play, which he enjoyed mightily, especially when, in thrusting out his right arm, he brought it into contact with another boy. Like Laura Bridgman, this young child was deaf and dumb and blind. Dr. Howell's account of this pupil's first instruction is so very striking, and so intimately connected with Laura herself, 
that I cannot refrain from a short extract. I may premise that the poor boy's name is Oliver Caswell, that he is thirteen years of age, and that he was in full possession of all of his faculties until three years and four months old. He was then attacked by scarlet fever, in four weeks became deaf, in a few weeks more blind, in six months dumb. He showed his anxious sense of this last deprivation by often feeling the lips of other persons when they were talking, and then putting his hand upon his own, as if to assure himself that he had them in the right position. His thirst for knowledge, says Dr. Howe, proclaimed itself as soon as he entered the house by his eager examination of everything he could feel or smell in his new location. For instance, treading upon the register of a furnace, he instantly stooped down and began to feel it, and soon discovered the way in which the upper plate moved upon the lower one. But this was not enough for him, so, lying down upon his face, he applied his tongue first to one, then to the other, and seemed to discover that they were of different kinds of metal. His signs were expressive, and the strictly natural language, laughing, crying, sighing, kissing, embracing, etc., was perfect. Some of the analogical signs, which, guided by his faculty of imitation, he had contrived, were comprehensible, such as the waving motion of his hand for the motion of a boat, the circular one for a wheel, etc. The first object was to break up the use of these signs, and to substitute for them the use of purely arbitrary ones. Profiting by the experience I had gained in the other cases, I omitted several steps of the process before employed, and commenced at once with the finger language. Taking, therefore, several articles having short names, such as key, cup, mug, etc., and with Laura for an auxiliary, I sat down, and taking his hand, placed it upon one of them, and then with my own made the letters key. He felt my hands eagerly with both of his, and on my repeating the process, he evidently tried to imitate the motions of my fingers. In a few minutes he contrived to feel the motions of my fingers with one hand, and holding out the other he tried to imitate them, laughing most heartily when he succeeded. Laura was by, interested even to agitation, and the two presented a singular sight. Her face was flushed and anxious, and her fingers twining in among ours so closely as to follow every motion, but so slightly as not to embarrass them, while Oliver stood attentive, his head a little aside, his face turned up, his left hand grasping mine, and his right held out, and every motion of my fingers his countenance betokened keen attention. There was an expression of anxiety as he tried to imitate the motions, then a smile came stealing out as he thought he could do so, and spread into a joyous laugh the moment he succeeded, and felt me pat his head, and Laura clap him heartily upon the back, and jump up and down in her joy. He learned more than half a dozen letters in half an hour, and seemed delighted with his success, at least in gaining approbation. His attention then began to flag, and I commenced playing with him. It was evident that in all this he had merely been imitating the motions of my fingers, and placing his hand upon the key, cup, etc., as part of the process, without any perception of the relation between the sign and the object. 
When he was tired with play, I took him back to the table, and he was quite ready to begin again his process of imitation. He soon learned to make the letters for key, pen, pin, and by having the object repeatedly placed in his hand, he at last perceived the relation I wished to establish between them. This was evident because when I made the letters pin or pen or cup, he would select the article. The perception of this relation was not accompanied by that radiant flush of intelligence and that glow of joy which marked the delightful moment when Laura first perceived it. I then placed all the articles on the table, and going away a little distance with the children, placed Oliver's fingers in the positions to spell key, on which Laura went and brought the article. The little fellow seemed much amused by this, and looked very attentive and smiling. I then caused him to make the letters bread, and in an instant Laura went and brought him a piece. He smelled at it, put it to his lips, cocked up his head with a most knowing look, seemed to reflect a moment, and then laughed outright as much as to say, Aha! I understand now how something may be made out of this. It was now clear that he had the capacity and inclination to learn, that he was a proper subject for instruction, and needing only persevering attention. I therefore put him in the hands of an intelligent teacher, nothing doubting of his rapid progress. Well may this gentleman call that a delightful moment in which some distant promise of her present state first gleamed upon the darkened mind of Laura Bridgman. Throughout his life, the recollection of that moment will be to him a source of pure, unfading happiness, nor will it shine less brightly on the evening of his days of noble usefulness. The affection which exists between these two, the master and the pupil, is as far removed from all ordinary care and regard as the circumstances in which it has had its growth are apart from the common occurrences of life. He is occupied now in devising means of imparting to her higher knowledge and of conveying to her some adequate idea of the great creator of that universe in which, dark and silent and senseless though it be to her, she has such deep delight and glad enjoyment. Ye who have eyes and see not, and have ears and hear not, ye who are as the hypocrites of sad countenances, and disfigure your faces, that ye may seem unto men to fast, learn healthy cheerfulness and mild contentment from the deaf and dumb and blind. Self-elected saints with gloomy brows, this sightless, earless, voiceless child may teach you lessons you will do well to follow. Let that poor hand of hers lie gently on your hearts, for there may be something in its healing touch akin to that of the great master whose precepts you misconstrue, whose lessons you pervert, of whose charity and sympathy with all the world not one among you in his daily practice knows as much as many of the worst among those fallen sinners to whom you are liberal in nothing but the preachment of perdition as i rose to quit the room a pretty little child of one of the attendants came running in to greet its father for the moment a child with eyes among the sightless crowd impressed me almost as painfully as the blind boy in the porch had done two hours ago Ah, how much brighter and more deeply blue, glowing and rich though it had been before, was the scene without, 
contrasting with the darkness of so many youthful lives within. At South Boston, as it is called, in a situation excellently adapted for the purpose, several charitable institutions are clustered together. One of these is the State Hospital for the Insane, admirably conducted on those enlightened principles of conciliation and kindness which twenty years ago would have been worse than heretical, and which have been acted upon with so much success in our own pauper asylum at Hanwell. Events a desire to show some confidence and repose, some trust, even in mad people, said the resident physician, as we walked among the galleries, his patients flocking round us unrestrained, of those who deny or doubt the wisdom of this maxim, after witnessing its effects, if there be such people still alive, I can only say that I hope I may never be summoned as a juryman on a commission of lunacy whereof they are the subjects, for I should certainly find them out of their senses on such evidence alone. Each ward in this institution is shaped like a long gallery or hall, with the dormitories of the patients opening from it on either hand. Here they work, read, play at skittles and other games, and when the weather does not admit of their taking exercise out of doors, pass the day together. In one of these rooms, seated calmly and quite as a matter of course, among the throng of madwomen, black and white, were the physician's wife and another lady, with a couple of children. These ladies were graceful and handsome, and it was not difficult to perceive at a glance that even their presence there had a highly beneficial influence on the patients who were grouped about them. Leaning her head against the chimney-piece, with a great assumption of dignity and refinement of manner, sat an elderly female, in as many scraps of finery as Madge Wildfire herself. Her head in particular was so strewn with scraps of gauze and cotton and bits of paper, and had so many queer odds and ends stuck all about it, that it looked like a bird's nest. She was radiant with imaginary jewels, wore a rich pair of undoubted gold spectacles, and gracefully dropped upon her lap as we approached a very old greasy newspaper, in which, I dare say, she had been reading an account of her own presentation at some foreign court. I have been thus particular in describing her, because she will serve to exemplify the physician's manner of acquiring and retaining the confidence of his patients. This, he said aloud, taking me by the hand, and advancing to the fantastic figure with great politeness, not raising her suspicions by the slightest look or whisper, or any kind of aside to me, This lady is the hostess of this mansion, sir. It belongs to her. Nobody else has anything whatever to do with it. It is a large establishment, as you see, and requires a great number of attendants. She lives, you observe, in the very first style. She is kind enough to receive my visits, and to permit my wife and family to reside here, for which it is hardly necessary to say we are much indebted to her. She is exceedingly courteous, you perceive. On this hint she bowed condescendingly, and will permit me to have the pleasure of introducing you, a gentleman from England. Ma'am, newly arrived from England, after a very tempestuous passage, Mr. Dickens, the lady of the house. We exchanged the most dignified salutations with profound gravity and respect, and so went on. 
The rest of the mad women seemed to understand the joke perfectly, not only in this case, but in all the others except their own, and be highly amused by it. The nature of their several kinds of insanity was made known to me in the same way, and we left each of them in high good humour. Not only is a thorough confidence established by those means between physician and patient in respect of the nature and extent of their hallucinations, but it is easy to understand that opportunities are afforded for seizing any moment of reason to startle them by placing their own delusion before them in its most incongruous and ridiculous light. Every patient in this asylum sits down to dinner every day with a knife and fork, and in the midst of them sits the gentleman whose manner of dealing with his charges I have just described. At every meal, moral influence alone restrains the more violent among them from cutting the throats of the rest, but the effect of that influence is reduced to an absolute certainty, and is found even as a means of restraint, to say nothing of it as a means of cure, a hundred times more efficacious than all the straight waistcoats, fetters, and handcuffs that ignorance, prejudice, and cruelty have manufactured since the creation of the world. In the labor department, every patient is as freely trusted with the tools of his trade as if he were a sane man. In the garden and on the farm, they work with spades, rakes, and hoes. For amusement, they walk, run, fish, paint, read, and ride out to take the air in carriages provided for the purpose. They have among themselves a sewing society to make clothes for the poor, which holds meetings, passes resolutions, never comes to fisticuffs or bowie-knives, as sane assemblies have been known to do elsewhere, and conducts all its proceedings with the greatest decorum. The irritability which would otherwise be expended on their own flesh, clothes, and furniture is dissipated in these pursuits. They are cheerful, tranquil, and healthy. Once a week they have a ball, in which the doctor and his family, with all the nurses and attendants, take an active part. Dances and marches are performed alternately to the enlivening strains of a piano, and now and then some gentleman or lady, whose proficiency has been previously ascertained, obliges the company with a song, nor does it ever degenerate at a tender crisis into a screech or howl, wherein, I must confess, I should have thought the danger lay. At an early hour they all meet together for these festive purposes. At eight o'clock refreshments are served, and at nine they separate. Immense politeness and good breeding are observed throughout. They all take their tone from the doctor, and he moves a very Chesterfield among the company. Like other assemblies, these entertainments afford a fruitful topic of conversation among the ladies for some days, and the gentlemen are so anxious to shine on these occasions that they have been sometimes found practicing their steps in private to cut a more distinguished figure in the dance. It is obvious that one great feature of this system is the inculcation and encouragement even among such unhappy persons of a decent self-respect. Something of the same spirit pervades all the institutions at South Boston. There is the House of Industry. In that branch of it which is devoted to the reception of old or otherwise helpless paupers, these words are painted on the walls. Worthy of notice, self-government, quietude, and peace are blessings. 
It is not assumed and taken for granted that being there they must be evil-disposed and wicked people, before whose vicious eyes it is necessary to flourish threats and harsh restraints. They are met at the very threshold with this mild appeal. All within doors is very plain and simple as it ought to be, but arranged with a view to peace and comfort. It costs no more than any other plan of arrangement, but it speaks an amount of consideration for those who are reduced to seek a shelter there, which puts them at once upon their gratitude and good behavior. Instead of being parceled out in great, long, rambling wards, where a certain amount of weazened life may mope and pine and shiver all day long, the building is divided into separate rooms, each with its share of light and air. In these, the better kind of paupers live. They have a motive for exertion and becoming pride in the desire to make these little chambers comfortable and decent. I do not remember one, but it was clean and neat and had its plant or two upon the window sill, or a row of crockery upon the shelf, or some small display of colored prints upon the whitewashed wall, or perhaps its wooden clock behind the door. The orphans and young children are in an adjoining building separate from this, but a part of the same institution. Some are such little creatures that the stairs are of Lilliputian measurement fitted to their tiny strides. The same consideration for their years and weakness is expressed in their very seats, which are perfect curiosities, and look like articles of furniture for a pauper's doll's house. I can imagine the glee of our poor law commissioners at the notion of these seats having arms and backs, but small spines, being of older date than their occupation of the board-room at Somerset House, I thought even this provision very merciful and kind. Here again I was greatly pleased with the inscriptions on the wall, which are scraps of plain morality, easily remembered and understood, such as, Love one another, God remembers the smallest creatures in his creation, and straightforward advice of that nature. The books and tasks of these smallest of scholars were adapted, in the same judicious manner, to their childish powers. When we had examined these lessons, four morsels of girls, one of whom was blind, sang a little song about the merry month of May, which I thought, being extremely dismal, would have suited an English November better. That done, we went to see their sleeping-rooms on the floor above, in which the arrangements were no less excellent and gentle than those we had seen below. And after observing that the teachers were of a class and character well suited to the spirit of the place, I took leave of the infants with a lighter heart than ever I have taken leave of pauper infants yet. Connected with the house of industry, there is also a hospital which was in the best order, and had, I am glad to say, many beds unoccupied. It had one fault, however, which is common to all American interiors, the presence of the eternal, accursed, suffocating, red-hot demon of a stove, whose breath would blight the purest air under heaven. There are two establishments for boys in this same neighborhood. One is called the Boylston School, and is an asylum for neglected and indigent boys who have committed no crime, but who in the ordinary course of things would very soon be purged of that distinction if they were not taken from the hungry streets and sent here. 
The other is a house of reformation for juvenile offenders. They are both under the same roof, but the two classes of boys never come in contact. The Boylston boys, as may be readily supposed, have very much the advantage of the others in point of personal appearance. They were in their schoolroom when I came upon them, and answered correctly, without book, such questions as, where was England, how far was it, what was its population, its capital city, its form of government, and so forth. They sang a song, too, about a farmer sowing his seed, with corresponding action at such parts as, "'Tis thus he sows, he turns him around, he claps his hands, which gave it greater interest for them, and accustomed them to act together in an orderly manner. They appeared exceedingly well taught, and not better taught than fed, for a more chubby-looking, full-waistcoated set of boys I never saw. The juvenile offenders had not such pleasant faces by a great deal, and in this establishment there were many boys of color. I saw them first at their work, basket-making and the manufacture of palm-leaf hats, afterwards in their school where they sang a chorus in praise of liberty, an odd and one would think rather aggravating theme for prisoners. These boys are divided into four classes, each denoted by a numeral worn on a badge upon the arm. On the arrival of a newcomer he is put into the fourth or lowest class, and left by good behavior to work his way up into the first. The design and object of this institution is to reclaim the youthful criminal by firm but kind and judicious treatment, to make his prison a place of purification and improvement, not of demoralization and corruption, to impress upon him that there is but one path, and that one sober industry, which can ever lead him to happiness, to teach him how it may be trodden, if his footsteps have never yet been led that way, and to lure him back to it if they have strayed. In a word, to snatch him from destruction and restore him to society, a penitent and useful member. The importance of such an establishment at every point of view, and with reference to every consideration of humanity and social policy, requires no comment. One other establishment closes the catalogue. It is the house of correction for the state, in which silence is strictly maintained, but where the prisoners have the comfort and mental relief of seeing each other and of working together. This is the improved system of prison discipline which we have imported into England, and which has been in successful operation among us for some years past. America, as a new and not overpopulated country, has in all her prisons the one great advantage of being enabled to find useful and profitable work for the inmates, whereas with us the prejudice against prison labor is naturally very strong and almost insurmountable when honest men who have not offended against the laws are frequently doomed to seek employment in vain. Even in the United States, the principle of bringing convict labor and free labor into a competition, which must obviously be to the disadvantage of the latter, has already found many opponents, whose number is not likely to diminish with access of years. For this very reason, though, our best prisons would seem at the first glance to be better conducted than those of America. The treadmill is conducted with little or no noise, five hundred men may pick oakum in the same room without a sound, 
and both kinds of labor admit of such keen and vigilant superintendence as will render even a word of personal communication amongst the prisoners almost impossible. On the other hand, the noise of the loom, the forge, the carpenter's hammer, or the stonemason's saw, greatly favor those opportunities of intercourse, hurried and brief, no doubt, but opportunities still, which these several kinds of work, by rendering it necessary for men to be employed very near to each other, and often side by side, without any barrier or partition between them, in their very nature, present. A visitor, too, requires to reason and reflect a little before the sight of a number of men engaged in ordinary labor, such as he is accustomed to out of doors, will impress him half as strongly as the contemplation of the same persons in the same place and garb would, if they were occupied in some task marked and degraded everywhere as belonging only to felons in jails. In an American state prison or house of correction I found it difficult at first to persuade myself that I was really in a jail, a place of ignominious punishment and endurance, and to this hour I very much question whether the humane boast that it is not like one has its root in the true wisdom or philosophy of the matter. I hope I may not be misunderstood on this subject, for it is one in which I take a strong and deep interest. I incline as little to the sickly feeling which makes every canting lie or maudlin speech of a notorious criminal a subject of newspaper report and general sympathy, as I do to those good old customs of the good old times which made England, even so recently as in the reign of the third King George, in respect of her criminal code and her prison regulations, one of the most bloody-minded and barbarous countries on the earth. If I thought it would do any good to the rising generation, I would cheerfully give my consent to the disinterment of the bones of any genteel highwayman, and the more genteel the more cheerfully, and to their exposure piecemeal on any signpost, gate, or gibbet that might be deemed a good elevation for the purpose. My reason is as well convinced that these gentry were as utterly worthless and debauched villains as it is that the laws and jails hardened them in their evil courses, or that their wonderful escapes were effected by the prison turnkeys, who in those admirable days had always been felons themselves, and were to the last their bosom friends and pot companions. At the same time, I know, as all men do, or should, that the subject of prison discipline is one of the highest importance to any community, and that in her sweeping reform and bright example to other countries on this head, America has shown great wisdom, great benevolence, and exalted policy. In contrasting her systems with that which we have modeled upon it, I merely seek to show that with all its drawbacks, ours has some advantages of its own. The house of correction which has led to these remarks is not walled like other prisons, but is palisaded round about with tall rough stakes, something after the manner of an enclosure for keeping elephants in, as we see it represented in eastern prints and pictures. The prisoners wear a party-colored dress, and those who are sentenced to hard labor work at nail-making or stone-cutting. When I was there, the latter class of laborers were employed upon the stone for a new custom-house in course of erection at Boston. They appeared to shape it skillfully and with expedition, 
though there were very few among them, if any, who had not acquired the art within the prison gates. The women, all in one large room, were employed in making light clothing for New Orleans and the southern states. They did their work in silence like the men, and like them were overlooked by a person contracting for their labor, or by some agent of his appointment. In addition to this, they are every moment liable to be visited by the prison officers appointed for that purpose. The arrangements for cooking, washing of clothes, and so forth, are much upon the plan of those I have seen at home. Their mode of bestowing the prisoners at night, which is of general adoption, differs from ours, and is both simple and effective. In the centre of a lofty area, lighted by windows, in the four walls, are five tiers of cells, one above the other, each tier having before it a light iron gallery attainable by stairs of the same construction and material, excepting the lower one, which is on the ground. Behind these, back to back with them and facing the opposite wall, are five corresponding rows of cells, accessible by similar means, so that supposing the prisoners locked up in their cells, an officer stationed on the ground, with his back to the wall, has half their number under his eye at once, the remaining half being equally under the observation of another officer on the opposite side, and all in one great apartment. Unless this watch be corrupted, or sleeping on the post, it is impossible for a man to escape, for even in the event of his forcing the iron door of his cell without noise, which is exceedingly improbable, the moment he appears outside and steps into that one of the five galleries on which it is situated, he must be plainly and fully visible to the officer below. Each of these cells holds a small truckle bed in which one prisoner sleeps nevermore. It is small, of course, and the door being not solid but grated and without blind or curtain, the prisoner within is at all times exposed to the observation and inspection of any guard who may pass along that tier at any hour or minute of the night. Every day the prisoners receive their dinner singly through a trap in the kitchen wall, and each man carries to his sleeping cell to eat it, where he is locked up alone for that purpose, one hour. The whole of this arrangement struck me as being admirable, and I hope that the next new prison we erect in England may be built on this plan. I was given to understand that in this prison no swords or firearms or even cudgels are kept, nor is it probable that, so long as its present excellent management continues, any weapon, offensive or defensive, will ever be required within its bounds. Such are the institutions at South Boston. In all of them, the unfortunate or degenerate citizens of the state are carefully instructed in their duties both to God and man, are surrounded by all reasonable means of comfort and happiness that their condition will admit of, are appealed to as members of the great human family, however afflicted, indigent, or fallen, are ruled by the strong heart, and not by the strong, though immeasurably weaker, hand. I have described them at some length, firstly, because their worth demanded it, and secondly, because I mean to take them for a model, and to content myself with saying of others we may come to, whose design and purpose are the same, that in this or that respect they practically fail or differ. I wish by this account of them, imperfect in its execution, but in its just intention honest, 
I could hope to convey to my readers one hundredth part of the gratification the sights I have described afforded me. End of section four, chapter three, part two. Reading by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia.